Hello, my fellow Bitcoiners, meet the status credit card. Earn unlimited 2% cash back or Bitcoin rewards on every purchase with no annual fee, no foreign transaction fees, and no fees to buy Bitcoin at the market rate. This card comes with status money's premium benefits to help you manage your money, including a net worth and spending tracker, peer comparisons, and the option to video chat with a financial coach. Download the status money app or visit statusmoney.com slash card. Get the status credit card, go to statusmoney.com forward slash card. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Brandon, I just kind of wanted to kick this off and, and just really ask kind of what your journey into Bitcoin was initially, and then also where your interest in ecology and fungi came from to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And one more addendum to the bio. I host meetups in Minneapolis. The handle is in my Twitter bio if you want to join there. But we had our meetup last month and we've been going since 2019. I think it's one of the biggest ones in the U.S. now. We get like 50 to 100 people every month. And yeah, I think meetups are sort of the backbone of this whole movement. So I want to show those guys a little bit. Hell yeah. <laughs> I got to get happy to have a cosmic Bitcoin, Brandon. You're one of those cosmic guys out there. So I excited to get into it. Thanks, EK. One of, the, one of my first podcasts I ever did was with you and David, I think 2018 or 2019, whenever you guys were doing POV. So thank you for that chat. Yeah, man. We've been friends for a long time. So excited to get to, get, get to chat once again in a recorded yeah. setting. Absolutely. So a quick back, background story a little bit. My Bitcoin story started in like 2011 or 12. Friends were buying drugs on the internet through the Silk Road. And I asked, how is that possible? They said maybe three sentences about Bitcoin. I thought it sounded insane, totally made up, not going to work. Dismissed it like most people. Again, bumped into it 2015 or so, dismissed it. And then 2017, price was going up. You know, all the attention was flocking there and I was trading shitcoins like a genius. And I, I thought I was so smart. Blockchain, everything, like full shitcoiner. 2018, everything crashed. I had to sort of reevaluate my decisions. Okay, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And I was living in Chiang Mai, Thailand at the time. And thankfully there were, we, we were having 100 to 300 person meetups, like three nights a week at this point. And thankfully there were a few hardcore Bitcoiners there who were patient enough to talk me out of blockchain for supply chains and all this other nonsense. Damien Me was one of those standouts. So shout out Damien for, for helping me understand what's actually going on here. During that same period, I, I started studying about money, economics, sort of like re, reteaching myself all this stuff from the ground up. Everything in university, you could more or less toss out. And at one of the meetups there, and I was actually in Bali then, so maybe six months later, and at one of the meetups there, we were talking about the Lightning Network and the architecture just looked like mycelium. And so 
okay, I had this little idea. I took my scooter back home and just had a total download of, of this, of the thesis of the first, first article in this series and scribbled it all down in my journal in like a few hours that night. And that was probably 80% of the first essay was more or less thought out then. And that was maybe like mid 2018. And it took me about six months, so end of 2018, before I published because I was a little bit intimidated by the idea of calling Bitcoin a living organism, right? Most of the writing at the time was more grounded in reality, we could say. And so I didn't think the Bitcoin community would more or less adopt it. To my surprise, they did. And yeah, I wrote, wrote a bunch of other addendums to that first article. Now it's all at brandingquitterm.com. You can read the whole essay there. It's quite long. And yeah, sort of through that through that period of realizing the parallels with living organisms, namely mycelium or fungi, which I have a background with, that started to, that actually answered the last question for me, which was that, why won't this thing just be stopped? Okay, if it is what we think it is, why won't the government just stop it? And I started to see that decentralized network intelligence or the centralized network archetype in Bitcoin and started running through all these scenarios. And yeah, that more or less cemented it for me. And then I you know, spent a year or two trying to change careers. I had a career in software sales and I went and did some entrepreneurial things. And once I found Bitcoin, I realized it's time to go all in on this stuff. And so slowly divested from those previous businesses. I actually sold the last one in 2021, but then, you know, wrote for whoever will have me, sold random products, just did anything to work in the industry. And then I joined Swan at the end of 2019. Before it was called Swan, we had a Give Bitcoin product. And then a few months later, we launched Swan. And I've been there since. Yeah, background with fungi really quick. I started foraging in 2010 or 2011, around the same time I got into psychedelics, around the same time I got into culinary mushrooms. And so, and I've always been an avid, avid outdoorsman interested in biology generally, but I have zero formal training. People always say you're a biologist or something, which feels nice, but no, I'm absolutely not. I'm just a generalist who likes going down rabbit holes. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of people could relate to that kind of taking multiple touches to really wrap their hands around Bitcoin. I mean, I definitely had a similar experience where uh, you know, I'd heard of people using it on the internet, didn't even realize, you know, what a monetary good was. And as time went on, I saw it a bit more and more. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, let me figure out, you know, what exactly this is. And uh, kind of the rest is history. I fell down the rabbit hole, found work by yourself, people like Gigi. And I was like, wow, there's just so much unexplored territory here. I and mean, it's just been, been an absolute blast digging into that. And I myself have an interest in complex adaptive systems, have been following some, some writers in that space for a while now. So when I found your work, I was, you know, quite happy to find that parallel there and that other people are kind of on the same track. But something I, I wanted to kind of hit on is like, we see Bitcoin as this decentralized system that doesn't have a, a single point of failure and, and kind of you, you really, you can cut the head off of, you know, a single organism or point of failures and, and, and stop it in tracks. But Bitcoin has this, this decentralized network of nodes distributed all over the planet. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like how that parallels to like mush, like mycelial networks and maybe for people in the audience, explain like what, how those networks are composed to kind of their architecture there. Yeah, absolutely. So first fungi 101, fungi are their own kingdom. I think a lot of people try to lump them in with plants or something like that, but fungi are actually more similar to animals. So if you look at taxonomy, animals and fungi are more similar than plants. We both inhale oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide. The main evolutionary branch was that animals decided to have internal organs to digest things. So we have stomachs essentially. And fungi digest things externally. And they use chemistry out in the world. 
And so what most people think about is the mushroom, right? Your standard button mushroom or shiitake or something like that that you, you eat at the grocery store. And that's actually just a fruit of the organism, like in the apple to the tree, right? But the main organism is primarily in the mycelial form, which is essentially a one cell wall thick underground root system. So tiny little thread-like tentacles that are pretty much invisible unless they're really dense that are everywhere all over. They're inside the bodies of trees, in tr plant roots, all over the ground. They, they digest organic material. So let's say a leaf falls down from a tree and hits the forest floor. What happens to that leaf? Well, mycelium leap out of the ground and they start digesting that through chemistry and essentially recycling that organic matter into its base elements and then selling that down into the, the underground economy. And so if you look at a cross-section underground, you're going to see a bunch of tree roots and a bunch of other plant roots, bugs, etc. And if you zoom in very closely, you can, you can imagine how all the tree roots are all connected through mycelium. And so these little networks, they ship resources bidirectionally, they send information bidirectionally, they, they, they trade, they literally trade nutrients amongst each other. And the fungi are primarily digesting organic matter underground to liberate nitrogen, phosphorus, things like that. And it gives that to the tree in exchange for fats and sugars that the tree produces through photosynthesis. Right. So it's a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship. And I think we should think about forests more as one super organism rather than individuals competing with each other. And there's a, a fungal ecologist named Toby Kears who studies this. And she's sort of the, the leading edge of this stuff right now. And we're barely understanding this stuff, just to be clear. But what she's finding is that these fungal organisms exhibit totally normal market functions. She calls fungi tiny little capitalists. But they trade resources underground. Let's say it rains, the fungi might hoard water and wait until it dries out and then sell that water for a higher price to a tree when they're starving or when they're, when they're thirsty. Same thing with nutrients. And they play these little games underground. And so that's, that's alive right now. And that fungal organism, that decentralized network intelligence we talked about earlier, that's what the mycelial network is. It's just an underground map. And actually, the largest organism on our planet is a mycelial network in eastern Oregon from part of the honey mushroom. And it's digesting an entire forest on a mountaintop. It's like uh, 5,000 acres large. It's several thousand years old, right? And, and these, this uh, decentralized network archetype, it's very, very robust. It's very anti-fragile. And so let's say you just cut the mycelial network in half. What happens? Nothing. Now you have two mycelial networks, right? There's no central hub. There's no CPU. There's no brain. And instead, it pushes the intelligence network to the edges. And so these branching, forking tips of this mycelium, which are exploring, they're constantly exploring outward, find something, consume it, and then they re-architect their system and go somewhere else. And, and that archetype is extremely long-lasting. Some of the oldest organisms on our planet are fungi. Over a billion years old are the, the most recent fossils. And in that time period, there's been five, I think, five mass extinction events, right? The most famous would be when the, the meteor hit around 65 million years ago, which ended the dinosaurs. And that period of time, we went essentially from the age of reptiles so cold-blooded organisms, right? We know reptiles. Then the meteor hit and it blocked the sun for a period of time. And when that happens, cold-blooded organisms can't survive and their food dies off. So essentially dinosaurs and all reptiles collapse 
And this tiny little shrew called the Tenric, think like a little mole, survived underground through this period of blocking out the sun. And finally, when the climate started to stabilize a little bit, that little shrew popped out of his little underground layer and produced all mammals that we know today on this planet are all are based on that single genetic ancestry. And in that same period of time, fungi, sorry, before the Tenric emerged, fungi inherited the earth. Fungi do not need sunlight, right? They can just digest things through chemistry. And so they took over for the plants. And there's fossilized records now of skyscraper-sized fungi that dominated the planet way back when. And so, again, any, any mass extinction event, fungi survive. So they're sort of the master survivalists. And they're also the master networkers, the, ma- the, ma- the master, master at symbiosis. And, and, you know, <laughs> to play with this a little bit, people think about a forest as primarily being trees, right? And then the fungi are just their little helpers down there mining minerals so that the, the trees are more healthy or whatever. However, if you look at it from a fungi perspective, what are trees, right? Fungi view trees as little solar panels producing food, which the mushrooms need. So you can think of mushrooms as tree farmers keeping the plants alive. And the mushrooms can say, we don't want to trade with this old oak tree anymore. And they can more or less starve it and divert resources elsewhere. And so just kind of kind of playing with perspective a little bit there. Back to Bitcoin, and I'll get off my rant here. Bitcoin itself is also a decentralized network archetype. Right? It's a series of nodes and individuals, a series of software run all over the world in a distributed sense. And if you, you know, take down half the nodes or something like that, the network's fine. Right? If you turn your node off, then you boot it up a year later, it's fine. You, your software knows how to catch up to the changes. And so it's similarly architected like that. And one other example here, and then I'll actually give it up, is when you attack a mycelial network underground, which happens constantly. Um, the biology underground is very hostile, very competitive. And let's say there's a predator on the edge of this mycelial network, and it's starting to consume the fungus or attack it in some way. Information travels through this mycelial network, and it reaches the mushroom scientists. And those mushroom scientists essentially learn about this attacker, and then they build a custom enzyme. And, and fungi are the masters of chemistry. Most of our medicine comes from fungi. Yeah, they're, they're just masters of chemistry. And then they produce a custom enzyme, which is then shipped over to that invader. And it's used to handle that invader. And then over time, that mushroom essentially builds a chemical library of defense mechanisms for, e- for invaders in its ecosystem. So it's essentially learning over time and it's building up these defenses. And it's the same with Bitcoin. Let's say there's a software bug or a regulatory attack or something like this. Information travels through Twitter. It finds its way to the developers. Developers produce a new software patch or a custom enzyme. Once you know it's ready to go, they ship the software patch, the whole network upgrades, and now that bug is no longer an issue. Yeah, that's probably a good place to start, but there's, there's endless parallels here. Yeah, I think the, the thing that really caught my eye is kind of the market functions of this ecosystem. And I think, you know, some people may see where this is going, but often people refer to as capitalism as like this Darwinian evolutionary process where people are trying to unlock energy resources, perform functions and maximize their fitness over time. And also they're sharing that information through the market, through these, this kind of cluster of connected nodes that are sharing price information. And so, yeah, I think that this like parallel between biological systems and and economic systems is very apt and and runs quite deep. 
and also I just I wanted to kind of touch upon this idea of the, the kind of the life cycle of the fungi. And right now we're really deep in this bear market. Kind of the signal to noise ratio is quite high. A lot of the hype has died away. People are building, bearing down. And something you reference is this idea of, you know, the fungi will emerge as a mushroom from this mycelial network and to distribute its spores during kind of, and the, the analogy would be these blow off tops of Bitcoin. And so I guess I just wanted to see like how you're viewing this current bear market and this idea of kind of the fungi networking underground, building strength and, and waiting for this next market cycle to, to take place. Like, is there anything you're seeing that caught your eye? Yeah, I just would love to hear your thoughts there. Yes, absolutely. So I wrote a thread. I was just trying to find it. I can't find it. I'll find it when, I, when I'm done talking here. But essentially, if you look at the fungal life cycle, right, life is good in the mycelial realm. We're just a mycelial network, right? That underground root system. And then that's the primary form. That is the majority of all fungus life is in that form. And then conditions are right. Let's say humidity and temperature, et cetera. And then that mushroom that mycelial network concentrates its energy right below the surface and then pops out a mushroom. That mushroom very quickly matures, often in hours or days. And as soon as it, hit, it hits its peak, it releases spores, which is reproduction. It's tiny little mushroom seeds, more or less. These little spores are lighter than air. They fly around. They land on the ground nearby. And if conditions are right where they land and multiple of those spores are nearby, they fuse together and they create a new mycelial network. Again, colonizing underground territory, waiting for the next time fruit, right? If you look at Bitcoin or markets in general, most of Bitcoin's life is in that mycelial stage or the bear market stage. It's kind of boring. Bitcoiners are all underground. The normies are like, oh man, they're either not thinking about us so they think we're all broke and dead. And then when conditions are right, Maybe something happens, we're in a bull market now, everybody's talking about it, the hype is going. That's essentially like the mushroom, right? Conditions are perfect. It's this explosive, incredible thing to witness, a mushroom popping out of the ground. And they can come out with so much force that they burst through asphalt, which is nuts. Anyways, then you hit the peak of the bull market, that crescendo, that's the reproduction part. The spores shoot out like crazy. We're getting all these new Bitcoiners, all this new interest. However, most of those spores land nearby and they don't survive, right? That's essentially most people come in during a bull market top, they get burned and then they never come back. They just write it off, say, oh, that was stupid or they're embarrassed or whatever. But a certain amount of those new entrants in the market, they stay, right? That's like the spores colonizing new territory, fusing, and then they join the underground network until the next bull market. And those folks are essentially joining community. Things are coming to meetups. They start wanting to contribute. Maybe they have their, you know, their weekly DCA with Swan. They start learning the differences. They start, yeah, essentially just integrating themselves with the social movement. Yeah, that, that's how I would describe that. There's a great thread on this. I'm going to put it in the nest when I find it. Brandon, I discovered you when you released your initial article, kind of like illustrating this a comparison between how mycelial networks work and and bitcoin and for me it was like it was a big it was a big article and i immediately followed you and you know i think you know we we're lucky to be able to connect shortly after that just because of how small this community was in 2019 but you know for me it was just it, it was a it was a groundbreaking article in my mental model for bitcoin and i'm kind of curious you know just to take this back to the beginning you said it was difficult to like kind of put your stick your neck out and kind of make a biological comparison for Bitcoin. And I feel like now it's, it's become much more in vogue 
to kind of, you know, refer to Bitcoin as like some sort of like advanced living being or, you know, something along those lines. Can you talk about like why you think that frame is is kind of catching on and 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 why it's helpful to think of Bitcoin from a biological perspective? Yeah, absolutely. CK, let's see. Oh, first, just going back to the hype cycles, I just put that in the nest. So check that tweet. It's maybe like three or four in a thread. It illustrates that quite well. Okay, so why does the Bitcoin thing stick? Or sorry, the Bitcoin thing. The Bitcoin is a living organism thing stick. I think the, the short answer, in my opinion, is that it's totally weird and new. And we don't really have anything to compare it to. Satoshi had a good quote on this. I don't remember what it was, but essentially this thing's bloody hard to understand because there's nothing to compare it to or something. And I think the living organism one sticks because it is a complex adaptive system. It is an emerge. It is a, a somehow order is emergent out of this system and it does seem to learn. It does seem to capture our attention, right? It pays us to keep it alive. You know, out of nowhere, Satoshi drops a white paper and some open source code, and all of a sudden it replicates across millions of computers, gains hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value in a few short years, redefines money. There's no CEO, there's no marketing department, there's no VC funding, there's no change the code campaign or Greenpeace scams. None of that stuff was necessary for Bitcoin to, to, to grow and reproduce. And so I think that, in my opinion, is what captures people is it's so weird and it does seem to mimic life. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that it is weird. And I, I tend to think of Bitcoin as being rooted in, in a lot of ancient wisdom. Like, I don't know if it was 100% intentional by Satoshi, but his understanding of kind of what drives humans forward I think was very, very advanced, which is why he designed such a, such a masterful game theoretic system. As part of that, you know, thinking through the element of how Bitcoin works and how it's going to progress, the biological perspective to me is really helpful. And, you know, not, I don't know if this is kind of jumping around on, on your outline, Spencer, but you're Brandon, your recent work kind of regarding coin Bitcoin proof of work being this like pioneer species. And, you know, specifically one of the features that I think is the most important in Bitcoin, which is that its proof of work is going to go and it's going to bring energy online. It's going to bring efficiency to energy markets that were once unprofitable or uninvestable. And you framing it as once again, from this biological angle, I found to be extremely helpful. Bitcoin Magazine podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now, through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. You want me to just do a little Pioneer Species spiel here? Yeah, please. Okay, sweet. So talking just in Bitcoin terms first, what, you know, what are the miners doing? Most people have heard the phrase Bitcoin is an energy buyer of last resort which essentially means Bitcoin will buy energy that no one else wants, right? So either you produce too much or you can't transport that energy profitable to a demand center or some other reason. And Bitcoin miners just co-locate on site to that energy production. And anything that's not sold to the market, the Bitcoin miners buy, and they obviously convert that to Bitcoin. And so that's the known one. That's really important. There's always slack in the system and energy grid. So there's always going to be a demand for that. Simultaneously, Bitcoin is the, the energy buyer of first resort, which was the type of lens I wanted to use with Bitcoin as a pioneer species. And that's essentially saying that Bitcoin miners help bootstrap net new energy assets. And they do this because they're a captive customer from day one. So let's say you're going to build out remote hydro in the middle of nowhere. Okay, you dam up a river, you start producing energy, but there's no one living in that area. And so you're producing energy and there's no customers, right? It might take you three years or five years or longer to build out high voltage transmission, to move that energy to a demand center, or you might have to wait until people literally move near there and slowly build up or you attract industry or something like that. And so there's that slack period where you're not making any money. And that's essentially a, a high amount of risk and it increases the risk of that investment. And investors are less likely to invest because it will take a lot longer to see a return, et cetera. And so there's tons of examples where there's untapped energy assets that there's no economic incentive to capture, right? And that's where the Bitcoin miners come in. They're, they're there on day one, the second, the first jewel is produced, they're buying it. Right. So that decreases the cost of capital, that decreases risk, that decreases the time to ROI. And what that's going to do on the margin is it's going to lead to an increase in net new energy production. And before going down a deep rabbit hole on why we need energy, energy is the master commodity of all goods, all services, our quality of life, et cetera. The story of life is essentially life harnessing more energy. And humans just became really good at it. We have more dense forms. And energy allows us to reshape the world we live in. It protects us from our environment. It gives us 90 degree angles and, and it protects us from the climate by building homes. It produces hospitals and transportation and fertilizer and food, et cetera. All of that is downstream of energy. And so very important. And if you look globally right now, underdeveloped nations almost always have very expensive energy. Okay. So if you look at in the US, it might be five to 10 cents a kilowatt hour energy you go to a random country in africa it might be 25 or 30 cents per kilowatt hour and that's an enormous amount of a monthly budget for someone living in those countries and that also means energy is too expensive that they can't produce anything locally so there's no 
manufacturing. So that means they have to rely on expensive imports, which is hard for these countries to handle. And if they want to invest in energy assets, they're going to have to take predatory loans from the IMF or World Bank, which essentially steals their natural resources through this predatory lending. Shout out Gladstein for this stuff. And he's written a lot on Bitcoin magazines. Everyone should go read those. But this is an alternative source of funding or a new way to bootstrap energy assets. And also shout out to Gridless, which is a company that Jack and Elise Colleen and many others have invested in. But they're going to set up microgrids in Africa with these energy assets paired with Bitcoin miners. And what they're seeing is this, is this was necessary to bring the energy assets online. So it's bringing energy that wouldn't already be there. And the net effect is that these Bitcoin miners are going to reduce the total energy cost locally because they're a new revenue source for the energy producer. Right. So they're more profitable so then they can reduce prices at the retail level. And so essentially, wherever these net new energy assets are deployed, they're spreading prosperity. OK, and that's kind of the thesis is prosperity is spread where energy goes and Bitcoin miners help bring more energy online. And then downstream of that is human prosperity. And, you know, I like analogies, especially biological analogies. So what is the pioneer species? Right. Pioneer species is a very special type of organism whose role in ecology is to rehabilitate either destroyed or dead ecosystems. So the famous example is a volcanic island near Iceland. So just a dead rock in the middle of the ocean. You know, is it just a dead rock forever or does something happen? And turns out pioneer species, they arrive on this dead rock. A common example would be a lichen, which is a symbiosis between a fungus and a plant. They partner up and the fungus acts as an anchor, it drills into the rock with those mycelial tentacles, and it starts digesting the rocks, liberating minerals. And then uh, biological or the, the plant matter, little symbionts, photosymbionts, right? They're taking the sun's energy and producing fats and sugars, which feed the mushroom and the plant. So they essentially bolt onto the rock. And over time, they start turning that rock into topsoil. And then now there's some soil. Now other plants can come, little hardy shrubs. And then they start breaking down the rock even more and more topsoil, more complexity. And over time, you go from a rock to this mature ecosystem, right? That is the process of succession. And I see that same process with Bitcoin miners, right? They go bring on new energy assets that draws in. Now that there's energy that might attract industry. So you might have an aluminum smelting plant or electricity in homes that you didn't have otherwise or something like that. And then the city grows near that energy asset brings in more people. Now you have jobs because of the industry, maybe you need homes and restaurants, et cetera. And so you go from a barren wasteland into a thriving human ecosystem. And yeah, then the rest of the article is me just playing around with these analogies and trying to explain Bitcoin mining through this lens. And then the end, I say, okay, we have this tiny little incentive change, which is energy has a buyer anywhere 24 seven with no one stopping you. Okay, and that little tiny energy kicks off a, a cascade of events, which lead to now rural areas in Africa are getting electrified. And you can go way further, right? At the end of that article, I, I extrapolate a lot. And I'm probably wrong on most of this stuff. But again, it's just tiny little incentives and, and trying to play out how they look in the future. I mean, Brandon, I feel like the best that you can try to be is to actually correct. And I personally... Maybe this is just an echo chamber, but I, I kind of agree with Kram in the direction. I might even take it up another notch. I've I've been pushing this idea and 
it's mostly just a provocative idea. I don't know if I 100%, you know, stand by it, but this idea that the Bitcoin proof of work mining incentive change that you're talking about might in the end be a bigger deal than the introduction of sound money itself, just because of this ability to unlock and monetize and 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 make energy resources and infrastructure possible. I think it is entirely possible. I would say five years ago, that would be the, the craziest thing you've ever said. But I think as time goes on, that the chances of that are increasing. And I think one way to look at this is, is simply the fact that now that there's a buyer of energy, right, that incentivizes humans to figure out new ways to take advantage of that. So new ways to harness energy, new ways to be more efficient with energy. And if we look back to the broadband internet area, right, for example, video streaming, so demand for fast internet, that led to, that was a market signal telling the market to produce more high-speed internet, right? So the demand side drives the supply side. Same with Bitcoin. Demand for that energy drives production of more energy. And if that leads one, two, three, 20 entrepreneurs to come up with new ways to harness energy, and one of those ways ends up being a core part of our infrastructure as a species, that could have untold potential future effects. And at the end of the article, I talk about how that incentive could lead to essentially zero marginal cost of energy, right? It cascades, it just directs human entrepreneurship to solving the energy problem. And what could come from that, I don't know, but I think... I'm betting on we'll have more energy, more widely distributed. And if we do have that and energy is all of a sudden much cheaper, then we can do crazy things like desalination, right? We can just pull salt water, apply energy, and, and the output is fresh water. These exist today, but they're just too expensive from an energy input standpoint. But what, what if fresh water was never an issue again because energy comes, comes down at cost? What about developing countries? They're going to be stuck in the, the literal dark ages unless they have more energy investments locally and they're not getting help from the IMF and the World Bank. China's exploiting them. The US is exploiting them. So they can do it themselves now with the help of Bitcoin miners. They're going to bootstrap their own energy assets and that's going to bring new entrepreneurs online because they can compete in the global economy. Their healthcare is going to go up, et cetera. And so, yeah, the, the implications are enormous. Say that. Yeah, really well said. And I think that truly points to kind of the benefit of the externalities of Bitcoin, where the externality of a monetary system based on energy is that people will begin to unlock new energy sources. Yet conversely, it seems like the externalities of the fiat monetary in infrastructure have really negative consequences. I mean, one of the things is that people are monetizing commodities or, or say things like real estate inputs that people need to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that this kind of points to one of the really interesting aspects of Bitcoin is that it kind of leads to transformations on a, a society-wide level, but also on an individual level. So an example would be that companies become too large to fail in the fiat system. You know, they can reap any profits that they get, but then at the end of the day, if they're about to go under, they'll socialize those losses. And I think that this kind of relates to this idea of being responsible for, for one's own and this idea of sovereignty and also self-sufficiency and that's something i've been thinking a lot about is like what does a bitcoin standard look like from an individual basis and then what does a fiat standard look like on an individual basis and, and this is something you've touched on in other interviews but i'd love to hear your thoughts is how does this relate to kind of the 
the developments of individuals in that they have to take responsibility. Do you see this as something where individuals will be kind of more individuated in that, you know, there's this idea of like the nanny state or, or people relying upon the federal government to solve their problems, not taking those into their own hands. And this kind of leads to like a almost infantilization or, or this non-adaptive response to the environment. I and mean, I would just, I would love to hear your thoughts on like, you know, indi any individual kind of changes in perspective you've had and kind of how you see that in the context of Bitcoin versus fiat. Yeah, totally. That's an awesome question, Spencer. And I think you framed it up well. So first of all, why does some magic internet money change people so foundationally? I think that's a, just an insane question. Alice does a good job trying to tease this out. But the point is, interacting with Bitcoin earnestly, like really going deep here, it does change you. The incentives just lead you to go down this 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 journey of self-discovery. And so, you know, it would be it would be easy to dismiss if it was just one or two people or whatever, but it's not. It's thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people reporting very similar transformation from this thing. So something's clearly going on. And if we look at the difference between fiat versus Bitcoin, I think, right, it, it's inflationary. So the purchasing power is always going down. So that naturally leads you to spend now because the, the saving incentive is decreased. And if we extrapolate that further, we become this always, it, it's like the ever present now. It's the next thing. It's cheap plastic goods, just in the system as an embedded growth obligation. If we don't grow, we die. And so young people start to look to the future and they say, well, this isn't going to go well. Social security is not going to happen for me. I can't afford a home. You know, the boomers sold the future and we're paying the bill, right? So then there's no hope. So then you increase nihilism and you have young people further living in the moment, not building families, not being the best version of themselves. And instead of, I guess, yeah, it's just being worse versions of themselves. The daddy, the nanny state will save us. And giving up your personal power uh, to the state is, it's weak. It's sad. It, it leads to a meaningless existence. And that's, that's really sad for our species. Young people especially need hope. And we want to apply the human race, the best among us, to solve important problems. And we're at our best when we are thinking long-term and when we are secure relatively financially in the short-term rather than this treadmill, you know, red queen effect. And so now enter Bitcoin, right? Instead of inflationary, it's deflationary. So that teaches us to save. That teaches us to think long-term. That literally changes our brain and changes our dopamine systems. And that will lead to new outcomes in our life and generally more positive outcomes. And in an uncertain world, which is always the case, Bitcoin is a little bit of optimism, right? Having a little savings makes you feel more confident in the world, allows you to take more risks in the world. It allows you to build a family and, and do the things that humans were meant to do. And it's sort of that parallel system. It allows you to not feel the burden of the world in a way because it's not necessarily going to affect you and yours. It also forces you to wake up and take personal responsibility. You know, managing private keys is a serious affair. If you screw up, you lose all your money. And so, you know, that's that sort of kick in the ass is good for most people. I think most young people, especially young males, need that today. And so, yeah, I think that's very clear on the individual level, on the society level. Um, you mentioned a good one with distortions in zombie companies, right? So due to suppressed interest rates, we're distorting market signals all over the place in companies that are, they're walking dead, they're bankrupt, they just haven't died yet. They're around 
clogging up the system. They're hoarding capital that they don't deserve. And all that misallocation of capital is just a cost that society bears. And Bitcoin, in a way, it there is no lender of last resort. So as we're seeing now with the contagion effect with FTX, et cetera, no one's bailing these companies out. So they're going to go bust. The market clears, capital recycles, and then we can go on with a more healthy situation. Whereas in a fiat world, you bail people out and what happens? You're just suppressing risk. You're just sweeping it under the road, kicking the can down the road, whatever you want to call it. And what that leads to is over time, you have an enormous explosion rather than these small short-term corrections, right? So the way I describe it is fiat gives you short-term stability, price stability. However, you accept long-term systemic risk, right? Every end of the long-term debt cycle, we just blow the whole system up. Everything's gone and we just start completely over, which causes a lot of problems, right? On the Bitcoin side, you have short-term volatility. So the price of Bitcoin is volatile because real life is volatile. And then in what you gain is long-term systemic stability because you don't have such exaggerated boom and bust cycles. And I think that's a better, a better format for human humanity to grow, a little more steady, a little more up and to the right rather than violent ups and downs. And another analogy here would be fiat is like industrial farming. Bitcoin's an old growth forest. So industrial farming, hyper-efficient, you know, it works great until something breaks and then there's a global famine and everyone's in trouble. Where an old growth forest is, you know, it takes longer to build. Growth is slower, it's incremental, but you know, if you have some weird disease that ravages the forest, you might lose 10% of the biodiversity and the rest is totally fine, right? So it can handle shocks. A famous example is the banana population. So there was a fungus, I think it was in the 50s, where all bananas, let's say 90% of the bananas in the entire world were genetic clones. So they all have the exact same genes. And then a clever fungus figured out how to consume that banana. And then over a couple of year period, that I think it's called Fusarium, it spread out through the entire world and killed all the bananas on our planet, causing massive food shortages. Or you could have a biodiverse crop of bananas all around the world, and that fungus might learn how to kill 1% of the bananas every year, but then the, the crop is robust. Yeah, back to you. Spencer, do you mind if I jump in real quick? Yeah, sure thing. So, Brandon, kind of like, Comparing, you know, the fiat monetary system to a Bitcoin monetary system and why you think the, the Bitcoin monetary system might be a better format for humanity to build on. I personally, you know, agree with that sentiment. That's really what drives, you know, my work. And the way that I've been framing it is, you know, humans, we, we leverage several operating systems like to communicate and you know make you know to just understand the world around us and one of those like advanced operating systems that we leverage at this point is money you know humanity has been leveraging money and using that as part of our like mental operating system that guides us you know for for hundreds of thousands of years and then when you look at bitcoin bitcoin potentially could be an upgrade on that money operating system. And I see all of us as, you know, at least until you you kind of make your personal transition to a Bitcoin standard as, you know, we're operating on a fiat operating system. And 
you know, even someone who's pretty deep in Bitcoin, it's difficult to get out of the fiat operating system. Um, you know, you, we're kind of still completely living in it. But how do you feel about like this, this idea of an operating system? And for me, I, I like it because you obviously, if you change your operating system, that's going to change how you behave. It, I think it makes it a little bit more intuitive. I'm curious what you think of that example or that analogy. Yeah, I think an operating system makes complete sense, right? If you if you look at society, the operating system is sort of that sub-perceptual set of rules or incentives that more or less guide society, right? We talked about these a moment ago with incentives, right? If it's an inflationary system, that's going to pull demand forward. That's going to incentivize consumption over savings, right? And that, that's one way to look at the operating system. And I think another way to use operating system here is what paradigm are we living in, right? And the transition period between operating systems or between paradigms is extremely hard to grasp for most people. And it's only when it's completely obvious that the paradigm shifts and it, it you know, gradually then suddenly everyone shifts to the new system. And I do think a Bitcoin operating system has tremendous positive externalities, like a better relationship with energy like a more sustainable way to grow and less consumption, less waste, a little more long-term thinking, which I think is where humans are at their best. But I also think a Bitcoin operating system is going to bring negatives that are, number one, Bitcoiners aren't looking for them because we're a little bit rosy tinted in the future and, you know, whatever, sound money is good and all the things. However, I think the, the long arc of human history is that technology is 51% good and 49% bad, right? So all new technologies bring positives and negatives and that 1% or 2% net positive from technology compounded throughout time, that's the story of humanity. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that there's certainly going to be negatives. I don't have any strong intuitions on what they might be, but I think one comment on here that people, that I've heard Bitcoiners say or critics say is that okay, if we're in a hardcore Bitcoin standard type world, won't that increase economic inequality, right? Because it's going to be harder to redistribute wealth. Governments will necessarily be smaller. And so our current redistribution function, like it or love it, will, will be reduced. And I think that that is true. And my thought here is actually that Bitcoin is going to increase wealth inequality noticeably. And I think that's true with all technologies, because if you have technology, and I wield the technology. I have more leverage. I can do more with less, which means I can accrue more value than someone who's not wielding the newest technology, right? So that gives me more wealth and someone else less wealth. But I, I think the, the, the conversation today is around, oh, Elon Musk makes 500 times more than the generator. And that's crazy. That's bad. And I think we should just throw that entire framing into the garbage. It's entirely wrong. What we should be looking at is we want wealth inequality because what that means is we're innovating and we're incentivizing the best and brightest to create value in the world and they deserve to be compensated for it. Now, on the back end of that, what we should be mindful of is what is the global minimum standard of living that we're all comfortable with? Is that food, water, shelter, medicine, whatever? And as long as that global minimum is above an ethical standard that we can more or less agree on, then we're in, in the right place. And... What happens when you incentivize the best and brightest to produce is that every once in a while they create something awesome and that benefits the whole world, right? And so I think that's the type of framing we should look at with Bitcoin is it's going to increase inequality and it's going to raise the lower, the lower, the lowest standard of living. And that's what we want in society. That's a healthy society. 
And then the, the big difference that Bitcoin is on the positive side is that currently technological gains are more or less captured by the monopolies, the governments, the government and business symbiosis that results. And it doesn't really trickle down to the little guy very much because of that inflationary pressure. So theoretically, all the prices would go down, right? But because of our heavily manipulated system, there's a lot of waste and exhaust heat in the system that prevents those positive benefits or positive externalities from innovation from entering the society at large. Whereas in a Bitcoin standard, let's say we're at a fully mature Bitcoin standard. Um, maybe the, the purchasing power of Bitcoin might grow one, two, three, four percent a year as real productivity grows. And in that situation, the purchasing power of the Bitcoin increases by one, two, three, four, five percent. And so the individuals who hold the money, let's say there's only Bitcoin to keep it simple. Now they buy more every year just by doing the same thing, right? So essentially we're socializing the positive benefits of innovation throughout the entire society in the form of the, the money itself buying more goods, right? There's 21 million against an increasing amount of real goods or real wealth as we innovate, as we get better at things. Yeah, that's kind of my rambling thoughts on that one. Yeah, I love it. I, I think one of the things that's, kind of struck me again in like a biological metaphor is on a fiat based economy, you essentially have these economic actors that are given easy money. They can grow at very low cost. Um, they can kind of be insulated from market feedbacks or from from the environment, economic environment in which they operate. And when I think about Bitcoin, I think of there is this irrefutable cost of capital, kind of this like natural interest rate that we converge upon. And, and essentially what this will require is that business models have to be anti-fragile. They have to be able to withstand environmental pressures. Whereas I think I've heard Michael Saylor say something like this before, but fiat companies are essentially zoo animals. They're hand-fed. They don't have to hunt for themselves. They can kind of just lay back and kind of reap those rewards. So I, I think just from like a- I feel old Twitter was like that. No offense. I feel like uh, that's what old Twitter was. Can you, can you explain that a little bit more, CK? Just like, you know, there's no chance of it actually being really, being really profitable. They're just like burning money left and right, you know, in some way using the public market and with, with whatever ad sales they're doing, you know, they're kind of managing to stay afloat. But, you know, it, it became like very obvious that when Elon bought it, he took a look at the actual company that, you know, there was no way that it was going to be sustainable. And then obviously, you know, once the advertisers kind of pulled out, or they didn't, you know, Twitter didn't do enough to actually maintain the the drip drop of of advertisers that the old regime was getting you know things came into question so it seemed as as if it was on this like weird stasis where it was just like allowed to live in this like un you know uncompetitive manner for so long kind of seemed like an animal like a domesticated animal in the zoo versus like a wild you know company in you know deep in you know a relentless capitalistic you know environment Totally agree. Yeah, Like in this current rising interest rate environment, we essentially have all these companies that have been atrophying, not having to be anti-fragile. And now, you know, they haven't even like taken, gone for a walk in years. And now we're asking them to do 100 meter sprints as fast as they can. We'll see how that goes. But I would, I would wager that a lot of companies are feeling this stress test that's being forced on them right now. I and mean, like on a Bitcoin standard, you would constantly be receiving this market feedback, always under stress. And in that way, you have to be anti-fragile to survive. So I think kind of the, the trickle down effects on that as far as what types of products and services we produce would be things 
of generally higher value and worth to us rather than these kind of fiat manufactured products and services that no one in a free market would necessarily you know, waste their capital on. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on this one. So I think it was Andreas who first brought this concept into my head, which was, he has a talk, I recommend it, maybe from 2016, sewer rat versus bubble boy, right? Fiat's bubble boy, obviously Bitcoin's a sewer rat that never dies. Great analogy. Just like the one before with fungi, right? Fungi get attacked over time and every time they're attacked, they produce new chemical compounds to defend themselves. Over time, they have a library of those chemical compounds to attack or to defend themselves so they get smarter and stronger over time. Bitcoin's the same way. You attack it, it gets hardened from hostility. You know, you can't attack Bitcoin the same way twice, right? It learns. And I think there's a, a, on a population level, there's an interesting ecology example here too, right? So in the most recent essay on the pioneer species, I talked about wolves versus moose. And there's an island off of Lake Superior, a couple hours from where I live. And on that island, about 100 years ago, Lake Superior froze over and it brought a population of moose and wolves to the island. And pretty much that's all that's there. And so it's a very simple, close to laboratory conditions environment to study population ecology, right? So the wolves eat the moose, the moose eat the grass, and the, the, you know, the moose try not to get eaten. Pretty simple. And if you look at that, I, I was trying to make an analogy there with miners and trying to get profit, but I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to explain the ecology. So... The wolves try to eat the moose, right? But the weakest wolves, the oldest wolves, they're very unlikely to get fed. And so they start to die off, right? And by the old wolves dying off, that's a good thing because if all the wolves got fed all the time and they never died, what would happen? They would just decimate the, wolf, the moose population. So the food source would go away and then all the wolves would die right after that. Right. And so it's a necessary function that the weakest wolves die off so that the pack can survive. Right. And that, that's the same thing with those zombie corporations. They need to die off. They need to recycle capital so that the whole system as a whole can survive. Right. Same with restaurants, which was a Televian example, I think, from Antifragile, where he said restaurants, you need them to take risks and you need tons of them to go bankrupt in order for the restaurant industry itself to survive, right? Because there's only so many dollars that's going to be allocated to eating out. And so you need this robust ecosystem of, of winners and losers in order to maintain that, the overall system, right? Same with Bitcoin. If, if, we're not, if we're not getting rid of these zombie corporations, we're going to have a giant crack up boom. Bitcoin clears the market immediately and allows humanity to continue on without the big boom. Yeah, I love it. And I also just wanted to the floor to anyone who has questions, feel free to raise your hand and we'll, we'll let you on up here. But one last thing I wanted to touch upon was this idea of Bitcoin as a potential parasite. So in our notes, I shared that example that you've spoken about before, but this idea of zombie ants, this type of fungi will infect these ants, cause them to climb up to a high branch on a tree, hang on to a leaf, and then the fungi will branch up out of this ant and then spread that way. And they kind of use these these ants as a mechanism to transmit themselves across space. And I, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how you see kind of the incentives of Bitcoin. It's been kind of an interesting experience for myself. The more I learn about it, the more I feel called to kind of act in its interest. And simultaneously, I suppose my own self-interest in having this immutable property, right? Um, that, you know, if we're all here, I think we 
agree is a superior money and should coalesce uh, in terms of value. But I, I, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on maybe the fiat Bitcoin dynamic as far as kind of the, the parasitism or, or maybe symbiosis of the two. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the short answer is that Bitcoin is symbiotic with humans, right? It's a completely voluntary system. So if humans didn't have a benefit from using Bitcoin, there would be zero adoption. And so the fact that we're seeing adoption means humans want it. So there's some benefit to us. And obviously Bitcoin benefits from humans because we replicate its genetic code across our computers. We feed it more energy. We allow it to grow, right? And so there's clearly symbiosis. And I think a little tangent here, and then I'll come back to cordyceps. Here's a question. What is the most successful plant of all time? Anybody, anybody? Wheat. Okay, you know this. <laughs> Correct. The answer is wheat. And the reason is because it hijacked humans and it told humans to plant this thing everywhere. We nurture it. We, you know, we make sure no other plants are crowding it. And it's just exploded all over the world with our help. Right. And I, I, I kind of view Bitcoin as the same way. It's convincing us that we need it and it pays us to do its bidding. And so we're going to make it work because it's good for us. And then bringing it back to the cordyceps, right? An incredible fungus. If you haven't seen this, just Google cordyceps or zombie ant mushroom or something like that. You should, you should see this. Um, and what, what does Bitcoin do? Right. It captures the hearts and minds of Bitcoiners. It somehow convinces us to quit our jobs, to donate our time and talents do this, this magic internet money. And many people become disciples of the corn and we do as the corn wills. And yeah, that's just hilarious. And it obviously rankles all of our critics because they view it. They, they think about Bitcoin as an investment and you shouldn't be emotional when you invest. And so they see us as these weird religious zealots. And to them, I would say, yes, Bitcoin does produce religious fervor. And that's a good thing. Could you imagine trying to create an upstart money to take over the fiat system that didn't inspire religious zealotry? Not a chance. And so, yeah, I think it's quite funny. And I think we should, we should keep this lighthearted. But I, I, yeah, I totally view it as a good thing. Love it. Yeah. And CK, unless you have anything you want out there. No, I mean, the one thing before we close it out, and maybe it's a, it's a pretty big question to close it out with, but... I think it's important because that's the reason that this this question is the reason Spencer and I started this show. You know, Bitcoin, if it is what many Bitcoiners say it is, is a massive, like fundamental paradigm shift to the way that human beings organize today. And therefore, in order to kind of project out accurately or even directionally correct what Bitcoin's implications and ramifications on the world look like you have to be able to kind of like think you know think in like these these mega cycles in long time frames in you know you need to be able to think around disruptive innovation and that's not something that people are generally very good at or find intuitive but it seems as though not only can you think big, but you can also, you know, think in multiple disciplines. I'm kind of curious, like, do you, what, why do you think you have that ability? And, and how, what do you think about it in terms of thinking big around Bitcoin? Yeah. So I'll, I'll try and start with the personal one and then try to circle back to Bitcoin. I think the world right now is more or less dominated by specialists. 
And this is especially true in science or any academic fields where you might spend 10 or 20 years just getting to the tip of your very narrow focus, right? It may might take you 20 years to be a leader in cardiology, for example. And what happens is because of that amount of specialization, all of these different subjects around radial arms extended very far away from the center, and they have almost no visibility to the fields that are next to them. Right. Biologists know nothing about chemistry who know nothing about geology, uh, let alone all the subfields in those. And so I think right now, first of all, we need those experts. Right. They, they do push, they incrementally push those little radial arms out further over time. But I think the world is right for generalists who sit in between all those radial arms. And there's tons of good examples of more or less amateurs. And I view that as a romantic term someone who, who likes learning and who does it without money for their own interest, right? There, there's tons of room to see between those radial arms and connect dots that are obvious once you have these overlapping skill sets, but it's not obvious to the specialist who you might intuitively think should come up with this stuff. And so I, I view that as my skill set is I just have a lot of curiosity and I allow my curiosity to run wild and in the moment, it might feel like I'm just flailing around, jumping from thing to thing, like I might be reading 10 books at a time and none of them are related. However, there's those moments when a book you read two years ago, all of a sudden clicks and separate fields like mycology and whatever we call the Bitcoin field overlap. And then you start to come up with something that's novel and new, or at least sort of, I don't want to claim my ideas are, are new. But you get the idea, right? There's room for generalists. And there's a book called Range. I think it's by Epstein, David Epstein. And he's essentially saying, building the case for generalists in the modern society. I found that book to be very self-affirming because I'd been an inch deep and a mile wide my whole life. But also, yeah, I, I think that it's, I think he's right. And I think there is room for that, especially now when information's more or less abundant and free. And with Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin's probably the most, most multidisciplinary thing I've ever come across. And so I think it does pay to be a generalist in Bitcoin, you know, know the people you need to ask questions to. Like when I publish things on mining, I, I ask miners to check my work because I make beginner errors all the time. But by having that, that perspective, you can sort of intuit how things will play out. And I also think intuition here is crucial, right? Because we can't measure the future. We can't make linear lines, we can't connect the dots from the past and expect them to create some sort of a line through a paradigm shift. So we have to just sort of digest the world as we see it now and through historical arcs and through diverse lines of thinking. And then you have to guess, you have to speculate, you have to intuit how those incentives might shape society. And so, yeah, I think that's why also generalists and, and polymaths or whatever hyper obsessive learner types, they gravitate towards Bitcoin because it's a never ending rabbit hole. And it, it's so, I mean, I, I get dopamine high all the time from learning it. And I think Bitcoin's just the never ending dopamine dispenser in that way. Yeah, I totally agree. It's been like such a joy just finding this new thing I can sink my teeth in. And every single rabbit hole I go down, it just seems like the bottom is endless. And um, to your point about generalists and kind of closing these gaps between silos of understanding, I think it kind of makes sense in that we're creating this new protocol for sharing information amongst economic participants and the people running this would probably mirror those same tendencies, trying to connect disparate fields of understanding to create kind of this more holistic understanding of 
what the problems that we face are and we can understand the landscape as, as it moves into the future. And, and on that, the topic of, of books you've read, I would just be really curious, like what resources have you found to be useful? Are there any authors that, that you found inspiring on your way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole? And then as well, is there anything you're working on these days or a new kind of narrative that you're, you're keeping your focus on? Yeah, totally. Okay. Authors, there's so many. I'll try to keep them pseudo related to Bitcoin. Kevin Kelly is by far number one. He wrote a book in the early 90s comparing the internet to biology. Oh, my ceiling of money. But holy shit, that guy's a good thinker. I think everyone should read every book he's ever produced. Go find his YouTube. It's amazing. It's an incredible thinker. Another one is James C. Scott. He's more of like a political theorist guy. I really like grain state. Seen like a state is good too. It's a great way to think about how Bitcoin relates to the state, how it will change over time, all the different permutations of the state, the incentives, et cetera. Matt Ridley is one of my favorite authors as well. I just think he does a good analysis in many fields. Optimist and Red Queen stood out for me. From a mycology standpoint, I read most of those books, but I think Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, Rupert, Sheld Rupert Sheldrake's dad, I think. That one's amazing. It's a very whimsical view of mycology. And we don't know much about mycology, truly. It's criminally understudied. And so he sort of takes leaps of faith and intuits the, the things that science isn't quite ready to admit yet. But I think he's right. That's a very fun read and you'll learn a lot. Huxley, pretty much read everything he wrote. Big fan. Most people haven't. Most people have read Brave New World, but most people have not read Brave New World Revisited. I highly recommend this. This was, I think, written about 20 years after Brave New World came out, also post-1984. So he sort of compares and tra contrasts Orwell's perspective. And it's really a sober view on the horrors of Central Planet. His brother was a eugenicist and very much like a status Central Planner type. And, and all this was the opposite. And so I think that's fascinating. It's very short. It's very sober. And I read it during COVID, which was absolutely on brand. I love sci-fi. I love to love uh, The Lessons of History by Amy and Will Durant was incredible. Also very short. The fourth turning was nice during COVID. Yeah, that's probably enough. Oh, what am I working on now? I'm actually working on a new essay. Not many people know this, but I'm looking at Bitcoin through the lens of the Apache Native American tribe. And it's a, kind of an exploration about how order emerges from the system. So things like 21 million, for example, is that hard-coded in Bitcoin? Is that a property in Bitcoin that's imbued by the system launching on day one? Or is that a product of this emergent system producing that emergent property? And I think it's the latter, right? It's trivial to change 21 million, but it's hard to actually change 21 million because the incentives of the users would not want to do so because it would dilute their value, right? Is censorship resistance a property of Bitcoin on day one or did that emerge, right? Obviously emerged. And so that, that's kind of part one. The other part is about failure modes on Bitcoin. And so the story of the Apache is they migrated from the Northwest of Canada about 1500 years ago. They came down through the Eastern Rockies. They settled in the Southwest, okay? The Apaches are nomadic. They are warriors, they have a flat society, and they can follow whoever they want. So let's say there's a disagreement in the tribe. One guy raises his hand, I'm going east. One guy's going west. The tribe splits, no problem. Right? So it's a very meritocratic, follow who you want, social protocol. And what happened was, let's compare this to the Aztecs. So Cortez, Spanish, came in there on a boat. He went up right to Tenochtitlan, modern-day Mexico City, the center of the Aztec Empire. He went to Montezuma and said, you know, give me all your gold. 
and Montezuma more or less agreed. And then a couple of years later, several hundred Spanish conquered the Aztec Empire, which was around since the time of Christ. Okay, this is a centralized org, the Aztecs. Very, very efficient, incredible monuments, incredible knowledge, incredible empire, etc. However, 200 men with superior technology came and conquered it in two years, right? Then Cortez went north and he bumped into the Apache. And what did he do? He killed the, the Apache leader. Just like with Montezuma, he thought he conquered the Apache. Yet what happened? Kill one Apache leader. Now there's two tribes, right? Kill them. Now there's four. And the Apache would do these hit and run guerrilla style tactics. And no matter what the centralized warriors of the Spanish did, they could not take them down. Okay, Cortez leaves. Mexicans, they gain independence from Spain. Now the Mexican army tries to conquer land on the U.S. border and they can't wrestle it away from the Apaches. They try to indoctrinate them, doesn't work. Try to kill them, doesn't work. Now the Americans are moving west in the 1800s and 1900s. They can't kill the Apache either, right? So these small decentralized bands withstand enormous armies. And so you're sort of looking at open societies and closed societies or decentralized orgs or centralized orgs or a starfish or a spider, if you know that book. And it's essentially calling Bitcoin is more like the Apache fiat money or proof of stake protocols are more more like the Aztecs, right? So fragile and efficient, Bitcoin's the opposite. And so I, I sort of go through that. And then the downfall of the Apache, the end of the essay is all about exploring failure modes. And how do you attack a decentralized org? You cannot attack it head on. We're watching that happen, watching that fail. But you can use subversive tactics. And I think that's what I want to bring attention to in the article is, yeah, okay, Bitcoin's anti-fragile, but it's not unstoppable. So we we should be more careful on subversion. So that might be convincing us that we don't need self-custody and put all our money in the exchangers. Or that might be, yeah, changing ideological intuition from the inside or whatever. There's all these different examples. And the Apache... The ultimate downfall was that the U.S. leaders went and they gave the Apache 100 head of cattle. Okay, so they gave the Apache wealth. And then the Apache, who didn't normally have excessive wealth like this, they decided, well, we better create a council and we better figure out how to distribute this wealth. And now you have people politicking and trying to figure out who gets how many cows or whatever. And it essentially corrupted the system from the inside and it convinced the Apache to give up their social protocol in order to gain wealth and become sedentary farmers. And then then the system was essentially broken and they could be easily brought to concentration camps slash reservations and essentially easily conquerable. And so I want to make that that make that story apply to Bitcoin and then yeah, explore those failure. Wow, that's really powerful stuff. And I think it's super timely as well. We're kind of entering this then they fight you phase. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you can't wait. And I think the explanation of the failure of the is important because it's really that a personal responsibility element in, in sticking to the incentives that, that Bitcoiners can use to prevent the, the failure of the system. Absolutely. All right, Brandon. Can I, can uh, I leave us with one? Coming on. Can I leave us with one big yeah. question? Yeah, please. And I'm actually, I'm, a, I'm actively exploring this. So I do want feedback if anyone has thoughts on this. So historically, monetary systems, I'm going to make gross generalizations, but historically, monetary systems survived one cycle, one long-term debt cycle or one fourth turning or one 
social cycle, one empire cycle, whatever. And then the money breaks and we have to rebuild. This happens constantly throughout history. Now you look at Bitcoin. Okay. People say it's going to be around forever or whatever. And I think Bitcoin is the first monetary system that has a chance of making it 50 years or, or sorry, beyond one cycle, let's say more than 50 years, but not necessarily true, right? And so my question is, is Bitcoin a 50-year system or a 500-year system? And the difference between 50 and 500 is enormous, right? It has to survive a whole social cycle. We have to give a shit about it in 500 years. You know, how do you preserve the values three generations later when no living person remembers the fight of taking money away from the state? right? There's all these different things that come into play. Do you transfer knowledge through a priesthood to preserve the principles? I hope not. Or are the incentives of Bitcoin valuable enough that humans will keep the system alive for 500 years? Satoshi said Bitcoin is a, is a what did he say? It's something about an arms race and Bitcoin is essentially gaining us ground against the state for, to, to fight another day. And you could say that that's kind of the history forever, an arms race between the state and the people. We get new tools and they encroach and then we create new tools to get around those, et cetera. And so, yeah, 50 or 500 years, what, what's Bitcoin's fate? I, I absolutely think that that is a worthy question for the audience and something that we should think about here on Cosmic Bitcoin. So, Brandon, again, thank you for coming, for coming on the show, for being our first guest. Definitely an honor. You are definitely a Cosmic Bitcoiner, a big, a big thinker in the space. So really thank you for, for what you do. And, you know, I would like to really encourage people to go to the Bitcoin conference. Brandon and I first met in person at the Bitcoin conference in 2019. Obviously a point in time that, you know, has been pivotal for my career and many others. And uh, the Bitcoin conference is continuing May 18th through the 20th, 2023, Miami Beach, Florida. You can get your tickets and save 10% cosmic bitcoin so the code is cosmic save 10 percent off and yeah you know meet bitcoiners in person bitcoiners are best in person the biggest bitcoin event of next year will be bitcoin 23 so can't wait to have you all there absolutely Peace. go i met Corey clipston there in 2019 the same time i met ck and that's what led to my job at swan so it's real it happened i'll see you guys in miami Awesome. Thanks Let's so go. much. And, and Brandon, if you want to leave us a note on where people can find your work, I know you mentioned your website. I want to give that a shill so people can, can read more. Yeah, you can check my Twitter bio, but my website is just my name, brandonquidham.com. All my essays are, well, all my long form essays are there. And if, if you guys liked any of this, send me a DM, send me your thoughts. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. This was awesome. Thank you very much. Cheers. Happy holidays, everyone. See you in See you next week, every Wednesday. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it, Brandon. Thanks, guys. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, 
Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. 